Sometimes what we forget that one of the things most Christians share, something we have in common, is the three-year cycle of Bible readings we read Sunday after Sunday. Here, there, and in all the corners of everywhere, hundreds of millions of people are, once again, the unseen guests inside Simon Peter's little house in Capernaum. And at least 14 or 15 of you people here have been spending the last couple minutes surprisingly long time actually pondering the fact that Peter was married. And so why then does the Bishop of Rome, Peter's successor, insist his priests must be celibate? Hmm. I'm told Pope Benedict hated that question, but maybe more of you are thinking about St. Peter's mother-in-law, about Jesus's healing touch, hoping, dare I say longing, to have that same experience where Jesus in his power and his love reaches out and touches us, takes us by the hand and lifts us up to a life that is closer to his life. We're also today given a good introduction to the way Mark the Evangelist tells stories. Every stroke of the pen mattered to Mark. Jesus is engaged in the breathless pursuit of his mission. Jesus meets John by the Jordan. He is baptized, tempted in the wilderness. He calls his first disciples, teaches in the synagogue, and begins his ministry of healing and exorcism. Already the crowd takes notice. Already he has a reputation amongst the demons. Already people are exclaiming, what is this, a new teaching, and with authority? And all this not in the first few chapters of Mark's gospel, but in the first 28 tightly compacted verses of the very first chapter of this, the shortest of all the gospels. Mark's gospel is lean. By reading just a few verses of it at a time, we can stretch it out over the course of a lectionary year, but it really is about the length of a feature article in The New Yorker. You can read the whole thing in less than an hour. And Mark drives this relentless pace with his two favorite words, kai euthus in the Greek. And we know these words as and immediately. And immediately the spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And immediately Jesus left that place and went to another. And immediately the fever left her. Kai euthus, kai euthus, kai euthus. Kai euthus appears so many times in Mark's gospel that modern translators don't quite know what to do with it. There are only so many times a text can support a single phrase without seeming stuck. But Mark doesn't care. The grass never grows under Jesus' feet. He is a man in motion. Kai euthus is found twice in today's passage, and they help us understand some of the immediacy of Jesus' work how this new way of being in relationship with God, one that is not dependent on formulas or middlemen, but where the great God of the universe, who in his love for us desires our company and asks us to enter into his divine life of holiness. Jesus cannot 
delay that work for one minute. No sooner back from the synagogue, at once, Kai Euthus, they tell Jesus about Simon's mother-in-law. Now, maybe some of you have a mother-in-law. I sure do. And I know very well what happens to your household when your mother-in-law is seriously sick. I'm certain that Simon Peter couldn't get Jesus there fast enough because very little else is going to happen until this little issue is resolved. Mark's description of what happened is, of course, more like a stage direction than a literary account. Mark takes two sentences to describe the healing. But let's try and put some flesh on those bones. Imagine the sight of the prostrate matriarch attended to by her family and breathe in for a moment that all too familiar smell of the sick room. Taking her by the hand, lightly gently, he lifts her up and the fever leaves her. Standing up in full and perfect health, in the midst of what could only have been amazement, she heads straight to the kitchen to start lunch. That little phrase, and she began to serve them, those words usually prompt some sort of reaction from people. It's a range, obviously, but typical responses range from, oh yeah, all the way to, what the, the woman barely cheated death, and the first thing you do is send her to make food for everybody? <laughs> well, the gospel is supposed to spark our imaginations. And here's where mine took me. I grew up in the frozen suburbia of metropolitan Toronto. And most of the meals I remember as a child began their over-processed life in the freezer and found their way to our plates by way of 45 minutes in a 400-degree oven. Most, my parents, mostly only cooked very simple fare, and we almost never ate together. Um, my, more and more often, actually, I was left to make dinner for myself. And when I left home for university, at the University of Toronto, my taste buds exploded because my friends took me out. Do you remember the first time you ever had a falafel? Or or a really well-made curry, or a steaming bowl of pho. Or, oh my stars, the first time I had chicken paprikash, I swore I would never, ever eat shake and bake again, you know. <laughs> when my mother's, when my, when my friend Khalid's mother, uh, this was during Ramadan, and she brought us all this Persian food in our dormitory. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Just to say nothing of the day I discovered the cheese store. You know, <laughs> dim sum, mother sauces, homemade bolognese. I have tasted, I have been to the mountain. <laughs> I am never going back to the frozen food aisle. So I learned a new word last month, commensality, commensality. I have a pretty good vocabulary, so I'm always excited when I learn a new word. 
Commensality is the practice of sharing a meal together. It comes from the medieval Latin commensa, which means with table. So the more I thought about the word, the more I said to myself, yeah, you know, eating together does kind of take practice. And you can fall out of practice pretty fast, as was evident in my household during the pandemic. When we had all had had just about enough of each other, thank you very much, we didn't need to spend additional times eating together. But, but critical to my domestic vision was writing that wrong of my childhood and it includes eating good food together. Um, and one of the things that I love most about being married is that I almost always have someone to eat dinner with. And I think that's just great. I love to cook, and I love to cook with other people even more, which is why the thought of my eldest fleeing the nest is a little troubling to me because he is my partner in cookery. So there are people, unfortunately, regrettably, who are told that their place is in the kitchen. And then there are people who know with great delight that their place is in the kitchen. And with Simon's mother-in-law, I think we're dealing with the latter here. So there is a miracle of healing Simon's mother-in-law is delivered of the fever which threatened her life. But there is also what I think is a restoration, a giving back of this woman's core dignity and sense of purpose. I imagine the woman going into the kitchen and selecting the finest of the tomatoes that had grown on the bush outside in her garden and slicing them and putting olive oil and salt on them and I, I imagine her proudly uncovering her village-famous hummus and tapenades. And I imagine her beaming with delight as her son and his friends scarf them all down gratefully. Her response is to serve them. And here's the last bit of Greek that I'll mention. I promise I limit myself to two per sermon. But <clears throat> the verb at the end of verse 31 is diakoneo, diakoneo, which is the same root word of our word deacon, the minister who exercises a public role of servant leadership, one who teaches us about servanthood. And this response of Simon's mother-in-law, gosh, I wish we knew her name, right? This irrepressible impulse to serve means that she now understands the urgency of Jesus' kingdom in a way that up till then only the demonic forces had managed to discover. She steps up to serve. It is her honor to serve. And she does not ask Jesus how she should serve. She doesn't wait for the right thing to come along or for a ministry to which she feels called to present itself, right? She just puts on her apron and gets to work because she has tasted the kingdom. Bringing it to others was now her urgent responsibility. And I, 
This, this sentence I wrote still amazes me, but here we go. In the topsy-turvy kingdom of God, where the last shall be first and the first shall be last, the first full citizen of the kingdom is a Galilean housewife. And so what about us? Do we, does St. Peter's stand at its own kai euthus moment? Sarah and I believe so. We, week after week, we come together here to practice commensality. We gather around a sacred meal. We gather with table. This meal wherein Jesus himself takes us by the hand and lifts us out of the sickbed of our febrile existence. Be you old or young, rich or poor, sinner or saint, we all believe, all of us here believe, that you are welcome at this table. What's the first and prime tenet of commensality? What do you believe to be true about your own dinner table? Well, it's that everyone gets a chance to eat, right? This week and last, we've just been hearing about food insecurity at connecting our faith across the street and the rippling effects of what we all know to be true, that, that, that not long ago a gallon of milk costs $3 and change, and now it's four fifty or more. The participation in our weekly food cupboard peaked last month at double the number of households who came when I first arrived in May. Our, our, our neighbors are hungry. One in five Philadelphians are food insecure. Our neighbors need us. Our neighbors are asking us to serve. Now, what will that look like? I don't know. Not every sermon has to be wrapped up with a bow. It's sufficient just to plant a seed. So consider the seed planted. Amen. <laughs>